The following is presented by Lanier Technical College, Concept One Pulley Systems, and Year One Classic Muscle Car Restoration Parts. Hit it! Hang on, you're now part of the fastest podcast on the planet, Bud's Garage Overdrive. Produced in the studios of Jacobs Media, located in beautiful downtown Gainesville, Georgia. On today's show, a Daytona 500 recap, Motor Trends pick for the 2023 car of the year, a Super Bowl flashback, and America's fuel infrastructure. Plus, our special guest, Doug Feehan, retired director of the Corvette Racing Team. All that and a whole lot more informative automotive buffoonery with Bud and Tim, right now on Bud's Garage Overdrive. Let's kick it into overdrive. Welcome in, folks. This is Bud Hughes, resident Carnot, and Tim DePasquale, a poster to these stars. Tim, how you doing this week? I'm great, Bud. How are you this week? I'm doing great, and I got a story for you. Okay, I can't wait to hear it. I was driving home yesterday from Hotlanta, the mm-hmm. other side of Atlanta, actually. I was in, uh, I don't remember where I was in, but it was the other side of Southside. Austell. Oh, Austell. Austell. I was okay. in Austell. My granddaughter lives in Austell. We mm-hmm. went to visit her. And so we're coming back home, and I live pretty close to a little mountain town called Delonica, Georgia. And, and there's a big highway going there that is called Highway 400. Yeah. And that highway has grown and grown and oh, grown. Yes. And they have, they have put up these 150-foot-tall steel utility poles. Mm-hmm. You've seen these things laying along the road. they got yeah. they got a poor foundation form. They're humongous. They're in, in sections. Of course, they never rot or anything like that. Right. And they've got topography that they've got to keep up with because you got hills, you got valleys, you got flat mm-hmm. parts. So these things are all at the same height by the time they get them in and done. So we're, we're coming back from, from uh, our little trip. And I noticed there's a lot of construction equipment along uh, the road on the right-hand side that we were on, and they took it down to one lane, took everybody over to the left. Uh-huh. And I see that oh, they're working on these poles. And then I see, uh, you know, what are they working on? And then I see a helicopter. What? A helicopter was stringing the wiring on these poles. Wow. So I, I, said to, I said to my wife, Jan, I said, I wonder how much an hour that costs. Yeah. You know, somebody up there in a helicopter stringing the wire from pole to pole, because the poles are probably 300 feet apart. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so that, where is, is the wire attached to the helicopter? Yeah. The spool is on the helicopter, at least as best as I could tell. Wow. The spool is somewhere on the helicopter. I I couldn't exactly tell where. It would be a big spool. Either that or they were feeding it up off a truck. I couldn't quite quite see that. I was trying to drive, too. It's not like like you can stop and look at it. but, But I went online to find out, first of all, what that would cost. And I couldn't get a number. But there was a helicopter pilot that was being interviewed in Tulsa or someplace. And he said that he used to be a lineman for 25 years. Mm. Now he fl- he's still a lineman, but he flies a helicopter instead of climbing the poles. And he had this big pole that was attached to the helicopter that went out to the wires, like a, I mean, a long fiberglass pole. And he would have the wire on the end of that pole and fish it into the reel that was on the pole with oh. his helicopter. And he said he could do as much work in one day as all the crews could do in eight days. Wow. So whatever it costs, it's a huge saving. It's a huge saving. And it's probably a huge life savings, too. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, you got one guy who knows what he's doing up there with the copter. Right. And some some of these, when they're doing it, they actually suspend a man from the helicopter 
to do some of the hookup. They weren't doing that this particular day. And they may go back and do that because I noticed on some of the poles, they no longer had the wheels where you string the wire. Mm-hmm. The wheels were gone and the pole, the, the wire was clipped in place on the, on the insulator. Yeah. So they may go back with a man and do that. But I, it was just fascinating. Wow. I wondered how they did that. Technology. Now wow. we know. That's, that's amazing. That's how they do it. Did uh, either of you guys, I, I should probably know this, Bill, did, did not watch the Daytona 500. You knew it was on, though, right? That's cars, right? Yes. <laughs> all right, all right. And I was busy moving, but I, I did try to get a recap, but it seemed like there was a certain amount of confusion post-race about how it ended on a yellow flag and who, I'm not who real was the keen. winner. I'm not real keen on these races ending under yellow. Mm-hmm. You know, if it gets rain or something like that, but I think if it's not a weather factor, they need to let these guys race to the line. Right. However, what happened is they went into two or three overtimes. I lost track. It's the longest Daytona race ever, and I lost track. And I think why they didn't want the cars to go any further was half of them were going to run out of gas if they went another two and a half miles. Well, they had gone 212 laps, and there were over 50 lead changes in the race. Yeah, but it was typical Daytona. You know, at the end, they're going to they're going to wad them up because it's the Daytona 500. So who are they saying is the official winner now? Was it Ricky Ricky Stenhouse? Stenhouse. Yeah, Ricky Stenhouse was the the official winner. And the cool thing about that is, do you know who Brad Doherty is? No, I don't. Okay, Brad Doherty played with the Charlotte. No, the Cleveland Cavaliers. Okay, 25 years. Mm -hmm. I met him a couple of times. He's seven feet tall. Wow. And he's a great guy. He's just a personality. He does some broadcasting and stuff, the NASCAR races. Mm -hmm. But this is a one car team. And he has two partners in the, the race team, and uh, that's a husband and wife team, and I'll give you their name in just a second, but I want to tell you more about the significance of winning, okay? Okay. This is a one-car team, first of all, and this is the first team that's ever won the Daytona owned by an African-American. Wow. And, of course, you know that Michael Jordan is involved with uh, Bubba Wallace uh, fielding a race team. Oh, yeah. 2311. And so he's talking smack to Michael now because they've won the Daytona 500 uh-huh. with a single-car team. So it, it, was, it, was, it was a pretty good, good deal. Now, the folks that are partnered with him have been running for, uh, they've been running for 29 years, all right? Uh, it is Jody Geschiker and her husband, Tad, that have had this team going for this long. And she says they started out with a house with race cars parked next to it and a lot of chickens. And that's I think I know where that house oh, is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Another cool thing about this is Ricky Stenhouse got a speeding penalty on pit stops. So he went down a lap and came back from all that. Wow. And that's kind of a tricky thing because what happens is sometimes you get sent to the back and you miss... Uh-huh. Some of the wrecks because they tend to be up in the middle of the pack. Right. That's where he would have been if he hadn't. If he hadn't. And, and he, I saw you know, there was a huge wreck there. Oh, there were several. Pretty, yeah, several, okay. yeah. And, and uh, you know, he said in his post-race interview that he, the first hundred laps, he just stayed in his car and watched what was going on. He said, I, you know, I was going nearly 200 miles an hour, but he said I wasn't racing. And he says there was no reason to go anywhere yet mm-hmm. because, like you, you know, like you say, last 10 minutes is... Uh, yeah. Is the whole race. Right. And I never watch them on TV. I just can't. Really? Uh, no. I, I, I listen to them. Okay. Uh, well, that's just me. I can't sit still for that long. Oh, i got to okay. be doing I something and listening to I the get, race. 
Yeah. All right, Motor Trends Car of the Year. <clears throat> wow, this was really something. Well, it, it's it's pretty cool. Uh, it was something that wasn't on my radar. This is the third no. time that they've been in this competition, but it's right. the Genesis G90. All right, avant-garde design. We'll talk about that in a minute. All-wheel drive, four-door coupe, twin electric-driven turbocharged that? engine. Remember, right we, well, we talked about taking our, our weed whacker, or not our weed whacker, our leaf blower, mm-hmm. and using it as a turbocharger. Sure. Just a little more scientific than that, but <laughs> they're running the turbos with uh, little electric motors, which is cool. they got to spin, you know, like 20,000 RPM, but... Right. Yeah. Well, it just goes to show that they... Uh, Genesis is not reverse engineering uh, what Mercedes built or no, Lexus no, no, built. No, they've no, they've no. come up with their own stuff. Some of the, you know, me being the interior guy, uh, four massage programs with three intensity levels, <laughs> a mood curator that offers four programs that tailor ambient lighting. Uh, How are you supposed to stay awake when you're driving this thing? You know, if I had massaging well, seats and mood lighting, well, you I'd s- be out. Okay, here you, they offer, you know, most of these cars that offer a scented interior offer a single scented. Genesis provides two, one that's more vitalizing, and one that's more relaxing. So you have a choice, bud. I mean, really. Wait until you go to fix the seats in one of these. And the suspension, you can <laughs> set it to chauffeur mode. Oh. Move the passenger front seat forward, sit in the back, and luxuriate. Who's driving at that point in time? Well, I'm, if I'm riding in it, you're driving. Oh, okay. If you're riding in it, I'm driving. Oh, all right. Or maybe if we're both going to ride in the back, maybe we can get Bill to drive. What's well, 102 grand? So what's what's the price with the uh, well, with the late fee? You think? And, and you know, you think 102 grand for a Korean car? Yeah, but mm-hmm. uh, an equal Mercedes that they say this is better than is 120 thousand dollars. Does the passenger seat have a mother-in-law option? Or she's actually <laughs> hopefully not a couple miles down the road. Yeah, but she doesn't speak English. Oh, okay. <laughs> Remember, we were talking about Super Bowl ads. Oh yeah, after the Super right. Bowl, I didn't pick this up until I until I read the article uh, that one of the one of the ads was talking about premature premature electrification. <laughs> <laughs> you you just about stumbled there, but there we go. I got it. I got it. I got it. Uh, the Super Bowl Dodge commercial hinted that, that was we, funny as heck. It will cure range anxiety. <laughs> the their new electric Ram fifteen hundred, and I got to thinking about that. Yeah, it was you know it was it was a it was a tongue in cheek commercial, and mm-hmm. it was uh, the the new truck. You know, we talked about the three row seating and all that stuff. Right. It's going to be a cool truck when it comes out. Uh, as I was driving down the highway on our little trip we took last week, I was looking. I was thinking about infrastructure. You think about those kind of things when you. Oh yeah, I mean, absolutely. other than looking for junk cars in, right. in people's garages and stuff like mm-hmm. that, you know. When you're in the middle of nowhere, yeah, especially. Yeah, yeah. Highway 16 is the mm-hmm. middle of nowhere in Georgia. Uh, but I was thinking about infrastructure. Now, gasoline is not pumped directly to the gasoline station. No. No, a truck brings it. Sure. And they put it in tanks and they dispense it. Now, natural gas, I would think, could be delivered the same way, mm-hmm. uh, like propane. Sure. So you don't have to have pipes necessarily going to the facility. You could have a big tank, you know, on the facility and, you know, fill it. Yeah. And use natural gas that way. I'm thinking. Now, if I'm wrong about this, somebody, you know, call me out on it. Electricity and hydrogen. Now, electricity, you got to run something to the right. facility. you got to run wiring. Or 
You could do what they do in California where they have diesel generators, mm -hmm. which are running big generators that can, you know, charge your car. Sure. Which doesn't make a whole lot of sense because of all the things you could run, a diesel engine is going to, you know. Well, it's the, is it the cart before the horse or, you know, you've got to do one before the other and to get people into the EVs and have some kind of infrastructure right now, that's what it is. But when we did the article or the segment about hydrogen fuel cells. Right. You know, the big thing behind a hydrogen fuel cell is you could build a big one mm -hmm. and be generating electricity exactly. off of it. You could be for fueling, right? So you don't. When we talk about infrastructure, we don't necessarily have to have a source and get it from that source to the to the station to, to the, the station. Right. You know, in in one fell swoop. There's a lot of different ways to get the power there. Sure. So I, I was just thinking about that as I was driving along. Well, you know, hydrogen in many ways seems like the the best answer, but you know that's for the infrastructure that we have, but it's gonna to need to be built up. But they, they said, that, and when we did that that before, they were talking about the, uh, they could make a hydrogen generator from which you could put the hydrogen into your vehicle and have it on site. Yeah, and it would do it in the same same time, basically, as a fill up on it's your car. Because right. Right. That, that's a big problem, you know, mm -hmm. when, you're, when you're on the highway. Uh, if you've been to Bucky's, you know, when you roll in there, they got a gazillion gas pumps and they got a bunch of electric chargers and stuff like that. But man, if you got to tie a car up an electric charger for very long, oh yeah, uh, you know, you're just taking up a lot of real estate. Exactly. So, uh, it was either last week or the week before. I can't remember. They all run together sometimes. And yeah. uh, as you as you well know, yes, sir. You're moving. <laughs> How are your weeks going? Uh, yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's very confusing. Very confusing. All right, well, this isn't confusing. We were talking about automotive and transportation, uh, a block of study that you could take at mm. Lanier Technical College. So I wanted to revisit that because uh, what I did was I was over at the school a week or so ago. And first of all, you need to realize as a listener, Lanier Technical College in Georgia has five locations. There's a main location, but they have five campuses. Mm -hmm. So these studies are available at different campuses, and you can check that out online at LanierTech.edu. But I wanted to talk about the diesel program. Okay. Because it involves so much more than diesel trucks. Right. That is part of it. But it's basically, credit hours-wise, it's 47 hours of credit. Mm -hmm. And some of that is basic mathematics, English, et cetera, et cetera. Some of those courses you can actually exempt by taking a, a test when, okay. you, when you get... But when you get to the actual diesel stuff, you know, you get the intro to, to diesel tech, tools, safety, um, you know, electronic systems, electrical and electronic systems, one and two and three, uh, diesel engines, truck brake systems, preventative maintenance, and on and on and on. The job opportunities from this program are preventive maintenance technician, diesel, service technician, a lead technician, service advisor, a parts specialist, Wow. The guys out in the shop can't work unless they can get the parts. Right. Service manager that takes care of scheduling things. A road technician. A lot of guys, you know, repair trucks alongside the road. Mm -hmm. uh, that's big business because, man, how are you supposed to get the truck there? Right. You know, if it breaks down. Uh, you can't hook up a wrecker a lot of times to a truck and a trailer and easily get it somewhere. Oh, right. And it ain't cheap if you can. No, you can't. So heavy, heavy equipment technician. Mm -hmm. So these are guys that are gals that aren't necessarily working on trucks. They may be working on stationary equipment. Right. Diesel Marine, you got an off, offshore boat, you know, mm -hmm. fishing boat, something like that. And they need people to fix the engines. 
mining technician. I hadn't thought about, you know, the mining equipment, stuff right, like that. Right. Uh, that kind of goes along with the road building equipment. Uh, generator technician. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You've There's got a lot, lot of buildings lot of that, that have. You, yeah. You, you have areas where you have national natural disasters going on and they have a generator go out on a hospital or something like that. Mm-hmm. Man, they need somebody there to get it done. So there, there's many different roads that you can take in this career. And I want people, when they're thinking about careers, to not just think about the small picture. We were talking about big picture thinking. Take, take a time to think of the big picture right. and where that career can take you. And the best thing about these careers is they're... You know, one to two years. Some are as little as eight weeks, the truck driving uh, sure. uh, program that they have. Now, obviously, there's more to truck driving than just taking eight weeks and going out on the road. There's more involved. Well, yeah. But, it, you know, once you get out there, you add to your bag of tricks, your skills, if you will. Sure. And you can fit it in your back pocket. Exactly. These careers are like having a, a toolbox so you can move from location to location. And you're, it, not, you're not narrowed into any one thing. Right. So they are providing workforce at Lanier Technical College and so many programs of study. Check them out at LanierTech.edu. Okay. Well, this week's guest segment is going to be a lot of fun. I think we're going to entitle it Two Wild and Crazy Guys from Buffalo. (laughs) One drives a Corvette and one has been the driving force behind the Corvette racing team. Uh, Without further ado, I want to welcome... Doug Feehan into Bud's Garage Overdrive. Doug, welcome into the podcast. Bud, thank you. Excited to be here. 25 years with the team, 113 wins as of this writing, 14 uh, manufacturing titles, 13 uh, driver championships, winningest history at the 24 Hours of Le Mans. How did it all start for you? What What was the car moment? This is where it gets wild and crazy. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. There's... I don't know how it is for other people. For me, there's certain things that stick out in my memory and things that I have just a vivid recollection of, even though I was young. Um, My dad was the oldest of seven children, Irish Catholic, living in uh, Kenmore, just outside of Buffalo. And uh, he had uh, four brothers who uh, obviously all younger. Uh, So growing up, you'd look for things to do on Saturday night, and they used to go to the jalopy races at War Memorial Stadium in Buffalo. And uh, drink beer and watch the car races. I mean, I mean, those days there wasn't you know internet and oh, yeah. television yeah. and yeah. all the things that were out there. So you had to find things to do that you found exciting. And they were all car guys. And and they were young. He was at that point in time. He was probably only 24, 25 years old. Mm-hmm. I was three, and the firstborn grandson. So I was doted upon. Oh yeah. Spoiled. Yeah. You can imagine how that goes. And so they used to get a big kick. They'd take me on Saturday nights. I can remember sitting in the grandstands at War Memorial Stadium, three years old, four years old. Had my favorite driver, Larry Marks, car number 11, uh, running around there. And uh, that's how I got started. That's how I got the bug. I was totally fascinated with it. I can just remember being so excited and looking forward to sitting up there and watching those things go around. From there, uh, when I was six, we moved to Detroit. My grandfather uh, opened up a uh, the Soto Plymouth dealership in Birmingham, Michigan. My dad opened up an auto body repair shop there. So cars were around all the time. And uh, anybody that had anything automotive in those days and who was a gearhead, there were always going to be a race car around. Not necessarily one that my dad ever owned or my grandfather ever owned, but friends of theirs, people they knew. Um, so we were, my brother and I, I had a younger brother, two children. 
uh, in my family. And uh, so we were in, 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 engrossed in that race car thing from a very early age. In the late 60s, 1966, 67, one of the guys that worked for my dad uh, and myself, we built a, a, a USAC Grand National stock car. And uh, we campaigned that uh, around the Midwest. At that point in time, NASCAR wasn't any really big no, deal. No, no. Uh, but they were just starting up. And uh, USAC was the predominant sanctioning body. I mean, hey, they had the oh, Indy sure, 500 yeah. and yeah, the midget races and yeah. the sprint races. So they were it. Uh, and when they got wind of this NASCAR thing coming along, the pressure was on them because their drivers, you know, the Paul Goldsmiths of the world, and they were going to run these NASCAR stock car races. And USAC said, well, you're not doing that. You're a USAC guy. And they said, well, you, you got nothing like this because it was, you know, be wintertime, the rest of it. They had been looking for stuff to do. So USAC started a stock car division. And we competed in that just, just on and off, obviously. We were getting... There was factory. I mean, Chrysler had a big factory program. Ford had a big factory program. I mean, it was Parnelli Jones, Mario Andretti uh, running Ford cars. There were guys out there running Chrysler products. Jim didn't have really anything meaningful. But it was, uh, it was pretty cool. It was a lot of fun. That was my first real introduction to, to uh, organized, organized racing. Uh, that morphed. My brother didn't like the, the roundy round stuff. He liked, liked road racing. I wasn't a road racing fan, but just north of where we lived was a little one and a half mile track, Waterford Hills, Oakland County Sportsman's Club. And it was utilized by all the automotive execs who would race on weekends. You know, they oh, all yeah. had Yeah, they all they had, had toys. Cars. Yeah. So my brother says, I, I, I want to go race out there. So we bought a Cosworth Vega, of all things. Oh, wow. Yeah. And put it together. And we started to compete there. And we had some level of success. He drove. I wasn't going to drive the, the round your own stuff. And he was actually pretty good. I mean, we set track records. We run championships. Um, and that got noticed by the guys we were racing against. Sure. We had to be automotive execs. Now, was what like, was I remember the Codsworth Vegas? Yeah. Kind of a, uh, I, don't, I don't want to say goofy looking car. They were different looking car. Well, it was a Vega, which, you know. Was, it, was it running the four-cylinder engine back then? Yeah, okay. Cosworth. Yeah, Codsworth. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, it was by no means a race car, race car, but you got to remember, you know, in that oh, yeah, era. Oh, yeah, in that era. era you know, I mean, it was, you know, quite frankly, I mean, it was a piece of shit, but it, <laughs> you know, it was, a, it was a race car. It, it had, a, race number, car. had yeah. a number on it, right, and, we'll and, and we were running, I don't know what it was, showroom stock C maybe, and right. uh, we were winning. At any rate, uh, the starter there at the Waterford Hills, a guy by the name of Mickey Mattis, was, happened to be the uh, motorsports marketing director for uh for ford mm -hmm. and uh he had uh, taken notice of our level of accomplishment and he says you know he says we're coming out with a new mustang mustang svo he said and it's a small displacement two liter boosted motor he said we're trying to show people that you don't need a big old honking ground pounding v8 to develop horsepower so yeah so let's let's back up for a second what were you running in your chevelle your usac car Oh, 427, big oh, block. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bill King was the engine man. Was the was our engine builder at that time. Yeah, the typical. What a, what a change from from that to the. the yeah, Cosworth. well, like I said, it was a it was a, it was a different world from a competitive basis. I mean, in those days when you built a stock car, oh yeah, there, there weren't special parts. I mean, you bought it was a standard. We bought a brand new '66 Chevelle SS. Uh, you know, you, it, it was standard chassis. You bought, you know, air conditioning springs and, yeah. and heavy-duty control yeah. arms. And, I mean, it was, 
it was, I don't want to say it was crude, but it was not anything like what it is today. It yeah, was right. simple. So at any rate, Mickey says, uh, you know, we're doing this SVO Mustang, and we're thinking it would make some sense if we, if we raced one of these cars, S4, uh, uh, in, a, in the you know, SCCA regional races and some national races, just kind of low-key, under the radar, right. to begin to introduce, you know, gearheads to the car. Um, in kind of a, you know, n not a grand trumpeting way. They right, were a little bit right, concerned about right. it. And they thought coming in this little soft entry might be nice. Would you guys be interested in doing that? And I said, yeah, we'll be interested in doing that. So he got us a car, a brand-new SVO Mustang. We brought it in, put a roll cage in it, got it ready to race. It would have showroom stock A is the, is the level in which it raced. Um, Roush built the motor for it, Okay. And uh, we went out and, and, and raced that car and had some level of success with that. So that was the, the, the beginning of it. When we had it, I thought to myself, you know, this is a, this is a factory program. I mean, the factory's paying for it. Yeah, it's a car that's a body in white and all whole No, it was, a, dude, it was a brand new street car. I mean, we went out to the dealer in Richmond, Michigan, picked it up and brought it back. Now, I was working in a dealership about this time as a, as a tech, and I remember the SVOs. What, what engine package did this have in it? It was a two-liter, four-cylinder, okay. turbocharged and intercooled. Okay. Yeah. Um, had a wing on the back. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it was, a, it was a pretty cool car. And it was, I mean, it may, I, I don't remember the horsepower numbers on it, but it was significant. The car was fast. Oh, yeah. And when Roush got done with it, I mean, you know, you can only imagine. Um, so we, uh, you know, I thought to myself, this is, this is going to be a pretty cool program. I thought I, I could sell this to somebody, meaning I could go out and get sponsorship. So my girlfriend at the time was in automotive marketing. She says, you know, she says, I got a buddy at an at a advertising agency. It was Hitchcock Fleming in Akron. They had the Goodyear Consumer account. And they had a company called Mac Tools, which was a division, is a division of Stanley Works. She says, uh, he's got that Mac Tool account. Maybe you can go down there. So she set up an appointment. I went down. They were in Washington Courthouse, Ohio. I went down, met with the with the uh, Mac Tool people. Lo and behold, they were excited about it. I'd put together an entire marketing program, not just put your name on the car. Sure. <clears throat> I was going to teach them how they get integrated into that, you know, 2,000 trucks that were running across the United States selling tools. I told them how they could use this, gave them some ideas, and they liked all of that. Well, we had, we had a very good level of success with the car. And that translated by them implementing the marketing program. We doubled the size of Mac Tools in two years. Uh, that was my entree. Then uh, Herb Fischel at GM had uh, watched what we were doing because I had I had tried to sell him a program with a Camaro uh, mm, two right, years yeah. before that. So we'd known each other for some time. Uh, so he called me up, <clears throat> and and fortuitously enough, John Campbell, who was the president of Mac Tools. Uh, interpolitical workings of large companies was let go and so when he left the race program as existed ceased to exist it wasn't within three days of that that herb fischel called me up he was unaware of this it was just great timing fortuitous on my on, on, on my good fortune i uh, says listen I, I got some situations here i wonder if you'd <clears throat> come down and consider taking a look at what i got so i went in and met with him and he said listen i got a couple road race programs going on right now that are not getting the job done. I'm spending a lot of money. They're not producing. I don't know why. Um, can you take a look at that and see what's going on? I said, well, do you have any plan in place on how you would expect me to do that? 
you know, I'll leave that up to you. I said, okay, here's the deal. <clears throat> I said, I'll spend next year, which would have been 1988. So this was the C4 era? Yeah. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Well, this at this point had nothing to do with Corvette. It was he had a Beretta program out of oh, Cars okay. and Concepts, all right, that was failing. And he had a Lola GTP program out of Hendrix that was failing. Right. All right. So I said, one was an IMSA and one was an SCCA. So I said, here's my plan. I said, I'll spend 1988 going to IMSA races and to SCCA races, Trans Am races. I mean, I knew all those people already at this point. In sure, time. yeah. Um, and just hang out as a spectator, but I'll be clandestinely preparing a white paper on all the things that they're doing, all the things that they're doing right, all the things that you're doing wrong, because your teams won't know I'm working for you. And I said, and then you'll have a report, and you can go ahead and figure out what you want to do. He says, okay. So I spent 1988 doing that, put together the white paper. He got it. He liked it. He says, okay, now I want you to come work for me and, and, and do some of this. I said, well, what, what do you have in mind? He says, well, my first order of business, I'm going to leave Hendrick go. He said, but this Cars and Concepts thing needs some attention. So I went out and met with Dave Draper, Cars and Concepts. Right. And uh, I took over the Beretta Trans Am program for them in uh, 19, late 18, 1989. In 89, we built a new car while they were still racing. Had Bob Riley design it. Uh, Mike McGarrett out in Fort Wayne, Indiana, built the arrow and body work on it. He was building high-wing AA fuel dragster wings at that point in time. So the car was pretty kick-ass. Uh, we went out and won the 1990 Trans Am Championship. So what was the major changes? You, you talk about there were, there were a lot of changes <coughs> went on, but obviously you built a new car. So what were some of the major changes from what they were running and, and what you built based on your white paper? Well, it was finding competent people which it is in any business. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, yeah. people are, the final distillation of any business is people. I mean, product is one thing. I mean, you got to have it, but it's people. Mm -hmm. It's people. It's people who design it, people who build it, people who sell it. You don't have the proper people in place. It doesn't matter how good the product is. Right? The product they had was not very good, and it was just not designed properly. I mean, I could see right away the issues that they were having. There was no organization at the shop, very helter-skelter, as, as occurs when there's not proper leadership, little splinter groups inside the shop had formed. I mean, they oh, weren't okay. operating in a cooperative manner. Um, we didn't have particularly strong uh, engine capabilities at that point in time. Uh, you know, different suppliers were in different places. They were spending a lot of money and not going anyplace, uh, which was, I don't want to say it was easy to fix, but it was fairly easy to fix. I mean, you come in, you get rid of the bad apples. Yep. You take the guys that you know, you explain to them where you're headed, you give them a mission statement, you go out and get quality outside people, that, you know, who's going to do your gearbox, who's going to design your arrow, who's going to do your chassis. You get the best people that you can possibly get. They're excited about that because they, just as I knew, they knew who the best people were. Sure. So, so I mean, they were, they were excited. We had uh, Tommy Kendall and Chris Neifel as our drivers. Um, you know, so it worked out pretty well. How did, how did you propose uh, you know this this team was was faltering on whatever budget they had yep. how how did your budget differ or did you have to work within their same constraints work within their same constraints oh really I, mean, okay. I, I had a budget that i worked to but i mean the the waste there's a tremendous amount of waste in racing when you go off and do things experimentally which you have to do to learn right, yeah. but and then if the experiment becomes a failure well <laughs> yeah know, so you got you know a a, a dumpster out back full of a half a million dollars worth of stuff that you can't use or that somebody's stolen or they're taken home and yeah. building their own race car with. Right, I yeah. mean, it was, yeah. 
Yeah, I don't have. I don't have to draw you the picture. I, mean, I understand. Can, yeah, you can figure out what <laughs> yeah. was going on. I've emptied some of those yeah, dumpsters. So, <laughs> so we, we got that cleaned up. So, uh, following that, um, Jim Miller out of Chicago had an interest in building a, a, a carbon fiber tub, really first one, a GT prototype car. And he had Bob Riley. You got to remember, this is pretty incestuous business. Everybody knows everybody. Oh yeah, yeah. A- and I knew Riley was doing that, and he went to Jim. Did Jim Miller went to Herb and said, "Listen, I, I want Chevrolet sponsorship for this intrepid the GTP car." Herb says, ah, "You know, I'm not really in a position to give you any. You know, blah blah blah. We've not had good success with these programs." And Jim says, "Well, how about if if we have Feehan run it?" And Herb says, "Well, you get Feehan run it, then then I'll." consider doing it. So I met with Jim, and he made me an offer, and I said, okay. So Herb pretty much placed me there. I was still working at GM at the time. Right. Um, so I went out to Pratt Miller and uh, got that thing up and running. And I mean, the car spoke for itself. So we were out there for a couple of years running Intrepid, which to this day still is one of my favorite all-time race cars. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was just really cool. What did Pratt, what, what did Pratt Miller consist of at that point at in time? At that point in time? Um, very small group, probably, uh, he ramped up for that, probably 10, 12 people mm-hmm. in a rented bay in Wixom, Michigan. When I got there, we, we rented another bay. We decided that the production shop and the race shop were running out of the same bay, and it was not right. working. So right. I told Jim we needed, we needed to seg- segregate those two things. And so we did. We got another bay, which happened to be just across the parking lot. And we ran the race shop out of there, and the the manufacturing shop out of the other side. Gary Pratt ran the manufacturing side, and I ran the race side. What parts were they manufacturing at that oh, point? Oh, everything. They were building everything. The, yeah. Well, the, the tubs were autoclave, so they would send those out, but they were right. building all the body parts and all the suspension components. And Yeah, they had full machining capabilities at that point in time, albeit a small company. Mm-hmm. And that was my, I'd known both those guys for a long, long time, because Gary had Roush Protofab. He was the Protofab arm of that went Roush bought protofab which was gary's company right yeah and then he went out there and did the mustang gtp and did some of the roush trans am cars um, and then left roush and started the deal with jim with pratt miller um, so that's where uh, i got my first glimpse of both jim and gary working together um, i'd been I, I had in my mac tool days i had purchased the roush trans am car and leased engines from him and we ran that uh, the last couple of year, last year in our, uh, in our SCCA thing before, mm-hmm. when I was still at Mac. So from there, uh, at that point in time, that we go back, that would be 1992, I think. And General Motors was trying to go out of business the first time. You know, they had just finished the whole J car, Y car, X car debacle, um, and spent all their cash heading down that road. Um, and what's some terrible, there were some terrible cars. Oh, they're beyond terrible. Yeah. yeah. No, they were beyond <laughs> terrible. All right. They, they were not. But the reality of it was, in all fairness to them, I mean, I don't know how many billions they spent, but they spent it all. And it was all cash they were spending. Mm-hmm. Um, in a period of 36 months to transform it in the largest auto manufacturer in the world from rear wheel drive to front wheel drive, forget that the product was junk. But just to be able to do that was an engineering marvel. Right. Um, people don't give them credit for having the ability to, to, to turn on a dime and do that. Like I say, the end, end result, the products were terrible and representative of the fact that they did it in just three years. 
Um, so I didn't have another program till 1995 uh, with Oldsmobile, World Sports Car. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was, uh, it was a program that had been up and running. Uh, Riley was doing it with their MK3, their, their prototype car that they were building, their World Sports Car that they were building right there. And uh, Oldsmobile wasn't really wired up for running road race programs. In those days, everything went through GM Racing. Correct, okay? yeah. And Herb controlled all Were that. they using that, uh, I, uh, the name escapes me right now, but we had one at, at home. Uh, they had that Oldsmobile engine they came out with the... Yeah, the, yeah, yeah uh, the Aurora. The Aurora, that's yeah, it. Yeah. That was the Aurora. So they had, a, they had a, uh, an Aurora, Aurora car that they ran in right. GT... And uh, Pratt built that, happened to build that car. That was just coincidence. Um, and then Riley and Scott did the world sports car thing. So the, the, the GT car with, with the people they had on that case was running okay. They had some issues with some of the Oldsmobile people on Oldsmobile. They were kind of cantankerous and made it hard for the GM racing guys to get something done. So Herb says, I need you to go in there and get these guys. See if you can work with them and get it straightened out. So I went and uh, we had... We, 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 we got, it, got ourselves up and running. We got Riley and Scott up on plane because they were struggling with the Oldsmobile people um, and went out and uh, we won the WSC World Sports Car Championship in 1996 with the Oldsmobile. Wow. Yeah. So the, the, that, as you, as you point out, was more of a people thing than a car thing at that point. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. All people. Yeah. All people. You just, Yes. You know, I could spend three hours here talking to you about how you do it and why you do it. But, yeah, it's, it's all people. Everything, you had all the moving parts. You just needed somebody to bolt them together. And when you, when you say people, I, I was talking to somebody at the racetrack a few days ago uh, about some, some folks that they had working at the track. And, and she noted to me that over the years, the, the people don't have the passion, uh, that the passion was lacking, you know, that they hadn't grown up with this. They hadn't. They were looking for a job. Is, is this what you started to run into at this point in time? Well, it, in, in, a, in a way, yes. I mean, that, that really, yes. It's not so much that maybe the passion doesn't exist, but when there's no clear direction and you know there's no chance for success, that passion quickly dwindles and it just becomes a job. Right. If you, yeah. don't, if you don't put up a target, nobody's going to be firing the arrow. So you, you got to get them jacked up you gotta let them know hey here's where we're going this is our mission this is what we need to accomplish here's how we're going to do it when you provide them with the organization and direction and the confidence and the support on the on the most basic of levels you build that passion that's how you build it it just it's not something that you can just well i need this guy because he's passionate this guy's no you can do it with anybody who 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 I mean, just cares a little bit. Give them a plan. You, you got to give them a plan yeah. and, and demonstrate leadership and make them feel confident in where they're going. And then, obviously, when you go have some level of success, why, they just fuel off of that. That's the easiest way to get them pumped up. So we did that in 96, and at that point in time, I had done, back when we were going out of business the first time. Um, now, you were still a GM employee? I, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I, I, to be clear... I was always a contract guy. I refused to become a GM employee. Okay. I didn't want to work for GM because then I became one of them. I understand. Um, you know, and I've, I've, I, you know, I've had various labels attached to me throughout my career. You know, rebel, rabble rouser, shit stir, blah blah blah, and and I'm guilty. Um, but that's how you get things done. Mm-hmm. Okay. If if you believe in what you're doing and you know what you're doing, you can sell it. 
and, and, and you're constantly dealing with people who have no clue what they're doing. So some people look at that as a negative. I look at it as a huge opportunity. If I've got someone who doesn't know anything about what I'm talking about, that means I've got a perfect chance to educate them in the right way. Yeah. I can bring them under the tent in a big hurry. Yeah. And that's essentially how this thing all, all came together. So I had in, in 92 and 93, I'd worked with a fellow by the name of uh, Jim Lutz and no relation to Bob. And Lori Dolph, who was a, a marketing guy at Kenyon and Eckert, was a company at that time, um, put together a Corvette program called American Patriot. And it had some unique aspects to it. And I had presented that in this going out of business phase in 92 to Herb's group. And I, I, I couldn't get anybody to bite. They were all scrambling just to keep their own job and stay employed. Right. Yeah. But Herb, it made a, it made a mark. Herb remembered it and said, listen, why don't you dust off that American Patriot thing? we got a new Corvette coming out, C5. He says it's going to be a kick-ass car. He said, you know, revolutionary, you know, hydroform rails. It's going to be a really good car. He says, I think this might be our chance to develop an in-house race program, a real race program. Keep in mind, all these other programs, if you paid attention to what I was saying, no reason why you would, um, they only went for a year. Right. And then they were dropped, which yeah. was standard GM MO. So I said to Herb, I says, I, I, I'll do this, but I want to do it my way. He said, well, what do you mean? I said, I'm, I'm not doing this again where we go out and put together a program and I get everybody heading in the right direction and then we race for a year and then everybody forgets about it. Right. Yeah. He said, I'm, I'm not doing that anymore. He said, well, you know, that's kind of like how we got to do it inside. That's just what... I said, no, that, no, that's how it's been done. That's not the way we have to do it. So we went around the block a few times of that conversation and finally I convinced him. He's, if, if, he essentially said, if you're willing to go and put something like that together and you're willing to present it, because he didn't want any stink on him when something sure, like yeah, came along, right. understandable, um, I, I'm, I'm with you. So I did. I put together the program. John Middlebrook was the uh, uh, Chevrolet general manager at the time, which was a very powerful job inside the company because obviously Chevrolet is their largest division. Important position. Um, Herman and uh, John didn't get along at all. And so that was part of the Herb's concern about trying to come together with a new program. Now, the programs in the past that we had run, all those Trans Am programs and the rest, I mean, you got $250,000 for a year mm -hmm. and you had to design and build a car and go race it program I put together for Corvette said we're going to spend year one designing and building a car, year two testing it, and then after two years we'll decide whether or not we're going to race the car, if it's good enough, and we'll also decide where we're going to race. That was the program. First year was going to cost $1.3 million. Remember, this is $1996. Oh, yeah. yeah. $1.3 million. Second year, $1.7 and then we'll figure out what we're going to do about racing. So I showed that to Herb, and he just, I mean, tipped over in his chair. I mean, this was the, this wasn't going to fly. No, no one in there, no, this is just never going to happen, Doug. I've spent here my whole life. I mean, this is not, I said, well, if it doesn't happen, then we're not doing it. I'm not doing it. Find somebody else. He says, well, how do you plan to do this? I said, I'm bringing John Middlebrook in. John's never going to come to hear this. I said, I, I, I know him. I said, I think I can convince him just to listen. I said, and I figure if I get John, then I want everybody in the room. I want the marketing guy, the sales guy, the engineering guy. I want everybody here and John here. And Doug's going to talk to John. 
And if John buys in, then the other guys know they have to fall in the ring. That was part of this whole racing thing was getting everybody pulling on the rope in the same direction. In the same direction. Right. But you've gone from a quarter of a million dollar budget <clears throat> right. to one point. Where, where did you, how did you envision that budget? You mean as to why we needed that? Right. Well, that's what it cost to, to design, develop, and test a car properly. Not, not building it in, in, in November, going to Grattan in December, and right. then going to yeah. Daytona in January. Racing it for that, the that, year that, and being know, done that's with not, it. Yeah, that, yeah. You know, that, that's not how you do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can do it, and that's always the way they did it with you know, outsiders doing it. But this was, this, I wanted this to be a factory program. Never had a factory Corvette program. Everything was out the door, under the table. That's amazing. Yeah, it was just never, because that's the way you had to do it, mm -hmm. right? Well, in GM's world, not in Doug's world. All right. All right, because that's not <laughs> going to be successful. You're going to end up with the same friggin' result. Yeah, keep doing the, the so, same stuff. I, we, we meet in the conference room, B5, all right? It was a small room, not a whole lot bigger than the room we're in right here. I'm at one end of the table. John Middlebrook's at the other end. All the other support team is there. Everybody's there, everybody, because they once they knew John was there, so now we had Dave Hill, the chief engineer, John Heidner, the assistant chief, Dick Allman, marketing manager, all the GM racing guys sitting there. Only a couple of them knew what they were going to see on the board. All right, Herb knew, and Joe Negri knew, and Harry Turner knew, and they were they were frightened and interested. They were frightened because nothing like this had ever. They had never seen anything like this being presented at this level of craziness. And, uh, but they were excited to the level of thinking, what if he can sell this? What if they say, yes, this, this is groundbreaking. This is, that's right. We're turning a corner here at GM racing. So in, in those days, of course, you didn't have PowerPoint or anything. They were flimsies on an overhead projector. <laughs> and it took about 20 minutes to make the presentation. I can remember getting to that first page. It said 1.3 million, 1.7. You can see the gas. <laughs> people on the perimeter and i'm looking right at john middlebrook and he's not blinking an eye okay he's looking up at the board i mean you know paying attention so we get all done i'll never forget it he takes his glasses off and he's wiping his eyes and i'm thinking i, I better be dusting off my resume because he was he was head down i mean he was what you knew what he was about to say was going to be serious good bad or indifferent he had given this some thought, and he was going to make his proclamation. And it was going to hit the fan one way or the oh, other. Oh, one way or the other. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He looks at me and says, Fian, this is the first goddamn race program I've seen that makes any sense at all. Now, I, I mean, I was excited. I did my best just to maintain my composure. You, I mean, you could hear the chins dropping on the floor. Everybody sitting around the table like, what the hell? Yeah. Did he just say, we're going to do this? That's just what he said. So I remember John looks down at the table of Dick Allman, the marketing manager, and says, Dick, what, what do you think about this? Oh, John, this is, a, this is a great idea. You know, this is the way we should be doing this thing with Corvette. This is worthy of what Doug said. Well, what do you think he's going to say? Oh, absolutely. The general manager, your yeah, boss, yeah. just says, I'm loving this. You're going to say, oh, John, I don't think so. <laughs> so everybody, everybody bought in, and it became my program. So I, at that point in time, looking at resources across America, I mean, I'd had, you know, working relationships with a lot of different people. Uh, Pratt Miller met what I refer to in the program, I talked about geographic advantage, you know. As, as an example, when we looked at some of the programs that I went and looked at, whether it be the, the Trans Am program or the Hendricks program, 
you know, you had a race shop in Indianapolis, you had engineering in Detroit, and you had an engine builder in California. Yeah. yeah. I, I can't tell you, it takes a hard job and makes it essentially impossible. So part of my program called for what I call geographic advantage, where we had everybody within 30 minutes of each other. We had Pratt & Miller, which was just in Wixom, Michigan. You had, the, you know, Tech Center in Warren, and we had KTEC as a proposed engine builder up in Mount Clemens. So anybody could be at anybody's place in 35, 40 minutes, which is how what you have to have to yeah. make this thing yeah. make sense. Yeah. Um, which is part of what John Middlebrook saw. I mean, understanding manufacturing and how it works and just-in-time delivery and all the other things that go with that. All this made sense to him at, at every level. Um, and, I, and I, you know, Herb having the vision to want to go do this, John having the, the vision and the wherewithal to approve it. Those are the two key players. That's the reason we were successful. Um, and so I got Pratt Miller to, together. And at that point in time, they were building a little Sports 2000 car. Um, I think they had eight guys, uh, same rented bay in Wixom, and a Ford Dooley and a broken-down fifth-wheel trailer. That's what Pratt Miller started as. But I knew Jim and I knew Gary. I knew Gary's capabilities could build anything. Right. right? Yeah. And uh, I knew Jim had the business acumen and the economic wherewithal to literally do anything. And, and they were easy sell because they were car junkies. They were excited. I mean, the rest is history. I mean, think about it, did Brad Miller just, Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, it's a, it's a massive aerospace military conglomerate at this point in time. I mean, just purchased by Oshkosh Defense. Right, and they, the Corvette portion was relatively small. Oh well, yeah, compared to what, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's how, it, how it morphed. But that's Jim, okay? Yeah. Jim, on, Jim, Jim knew the things we needed in racing, he went out and got, and the things, I'm talking about people, personnel, the right. computers, all the stuff you need, you know, CFD and Arrow and, yeah. and, 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 and once he had that, he knew that we probably weren't utilizing all that stuff to 100% capacity and said, well, how can I, how can I, how can I leverage this investment? And he knew that military and aerospace was a lucrative market. I mean, he had a big toolbox with a lot of tools in it. He just needed more mechanics. And so that's when he went out and got a bunch of the nation's best, brightest minds and started off on that whole military thing. So you start out with this budget the first year, $1.3 yeah. Is that strictly on the race car? Are, the, are these engineers and stuff that are sitting at the table listening to your presentation, they are GM employees, right? No, well, yes. Everybody in that room was a GM employee. Absolutely. So they were still being paid by GM, but yeah. they were all right. So that... that that seemed like a tremendous leverage in itself. Well, yeah. I mean, we had we had great resources yeah. inside. And 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 you hit on a really good point here, Bud. And I'm just trying to give you the Cliff's Notes version. Like I said, we could spend a week talking about this. The mantra at Jam was checker flag and a trophy. That was their vision mm -hmm. and self-proclaimed vision of what racing was. Right. Nothing wrong with that. And that that's what drives it at the end of the day. No pun intended. But the reality of it is they had no idea how to integrate it into the company and to, and to maximize their investment. How do, you, how do you utilize racing to do other things besides win a checkered flag and a trophy? How do you get your design, your, your, your design team at Corvette Studio enthused about what, any more enthused about what they're doing? How do you build that camaraderie? How do you make them be even more proud of what they're doing at Corvette? How do you do that with the chassis engineering guys? How do you do that with your event? At GM, it's a 
huge company, and they have people doing all kinds of different things. Like all the auto shows and things that they do, sure. there's a whole design team that, that does all those, which you see when you walk in that room, there's a whole design team that does that, right? That's never had anything to do with race. Right. I said, well, we're, we're ending that. Well, why do you want to end that? I said, I want to bring them in. I want to make them feel like they're part of this race program. Build internal pride, build enthusiasm, okay? And so I went to the guy who headed up those people. He had like 150 people in that group. He assigned three people to me, and we designed the uniforms. We designed the graphics on the cars. We designed our first Le Mans garage stuff. I mean, and they loved it. They, they were geeked, totally excited. Right. When their boss saw that, he's thinking, this ra- he was not a racer. Never been to a race in his life. But he saw what racing brought. Yeah, it okay. brought, it brought yeah. people to that core event. So that began the whole thing. And there was a method to my madness. I, I knew that, you know, going down the road, there were going to be naysayers, and there were going to be those people who don't like racing, whether they're being town or whatever, you know, I, and understandably so. But I knew if I could grow this thing into different areas of the company, like roots on a tree, if I could get it embedded deep enough in all these different divisions and, and, and aspects of GM, it becomes super hard to end Corvette race because now you're not just ending a race program you're affecting the guys at gm design you're affecting the guys at that display you're affecting the guys in the aero department you're affecting guys in the in the engine design you're taking away their mission well yeah yeah what they're living for right i mean they're wearing their corvette hat to work and they got a corvette poster in their office there you're not working on corvette they could be working on a truck yeah but they're excited about being part of race so I knew if I could get that deep enough in there that it would be really hard to have it in. And um, fortunately, you know, it worked out pretty well. I mean, we, we navigated some pretty serious water up to and including a bankruptcy. Right. You know, we had eight or nine race programs at GM that actuaries came in and investigated. And NASCAR made it, and Corvette Racing made it, everything else didn't. But they saw the value of what we were doing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And when you think about it, I mean, when was the last time you saw a Corvette ad on TV or in print? You know, we don't advertise it. Right. Racing. That's right. Absolutely. Um, And it's a very effective way. And that was, again, part of the part of the program. How you sell. At the end of the day, we're here to sell cars. Right. Right. That's what you're going to be measured by. You build something that's good enough. You're not going to have any trouble selling it. C8 comes to mind. Right. Right. Ted Jecter. We got to the point where we actually had Pratt Miller people embedded in the program. They were helping them with aero and chassis and design. The C8 is as close to a race car as you oh, absolutely ever get. And then the, the street versions of the Corvette yeah. are, are actually more powerful yeah. than, than the, the race racers. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, it's what I call cascade engineering. We know we inherited the C5. Right. Dave Hill was chief engineer. And he bought into what we were doing. He went home after our first race in Daytona and changed his letterhead and put a byline on it that said bring the racing spirit to work after one race right yeah okay so he 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 got it he understood what we were he understood what we were trying to do so he had c5 so we took the c5 and then for c6 he says what do you what do you need what do you need to make the race car be better and i told him i said well first of all i said we need one big grill opening in the front i said you know we took in because you got to have combustion air, engine cooling air, brake cooling, all that stuff. All and, we, that, and the yeah. C5 had those two little cat whiskers in yep. the front. And then it took a lot of engine cooling air up in, in underneath. That yeah, doesn't work in a race. No, you're creating lift on the and front the, of the and car. And to do that, I mean, it was a 
it was a manufacturing nightmare to try and get enough air through those openings and get it ducted and moved around to where we needed it. So I said, give me a big opening in front. I said, lose the flip-up headlights. Oh, my God in heaven. When I... <laughs> Because that had been the signature since 63. Doug, I, I, I can't do that. He says, uh, people will go crazy. I, you know, I said, no, no, you can do it. You can do it. All right? Think about where we're going now. That was just when HID lighting, high-intensity discharge right. lighting was coming. Right, so you yeah. needed transformers and all that other stuff, yeah. which really wasn't lending itself to flip up anyway. No, I said, with the transition of lighting, this is a great opportunity. I need aero flush fit. Headlights. I said, if you can legally tip that windshield back one or two degrees, that'd be helpful. Well, you know what? He took all that to heart. You only have to look at the difference between C5 and C6. Oh, yeah. He took all those suggestions to heart, went to the design guys, okay, in studio. Okay, now they're designing a race car. Yeah. You know, quote, unquote. So we took a good road car. We made a good race car, which yielded a better road car which yielded a better race car because we went to the Z06, which was then the 427 small block, oh, yeah. which we developed in-house. Oh, yeah. Short story, we went to powertrain, we were racing Viper. I said, we need, we need a, we need a seven liter small block. Can't do it, why not? Well, piston speeds are too high. We can't, we can't get there from here. Okay, so I took their word for powertrain, went back, talked to our engine guy. He says, oh, well, I, I think we can do it. I want to try it. So at K-Tech, Kevin Pranger, John Rice, right. built a 427 cubic inch small block motor, went out and drive something, went out and won Lamar with it. Powertrain guys call up and say, how the hell did you do that? The next thing you know, you got Z06 and the C6 with a 427 small block. Racing leading the way for technology. That's Cascade Engineering, right up onto the penultimate, which is obviously C8. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you, you have those first two years where you're developing a car, yep. you're putting it to, you know, yep. testing it. Then you start racing it. Tell yep. us about some of the successes after you started racing the car. Well, so I, I, I this tell them. This will be the C5. Yeah. So I tell them the first race we're going to is Daytona. Are you out of your mind? You're going to the 24 hours of Daytona for your first race? I said, yeah. I said, we can test for 10 more years until you go out there and do it. Yeah. Well, and I said, there's no better, there's no greater test than Daytona. And I said, I, I believe in our guys. I believe in our product. So we went out. We, we led that race for almost 20 hours. The one thing that we had never encountered right, in all our testing was being on the track with 60 other cars at Daytona. Sure. Really sandy. And stirring that stuff up, we had a dual-stage filtration system, but the sand blew the filter element right out of the filter over the period of time. We got to about the 20-hour mark in that race where we were leading. And the sand completely abraded the piston rings out of the number eight. Sure. Cylinder. Yeah. And so we were doing nothing but pumping oil for the last while. We ran out of oil. We had to go to competitors. And we were Mobile One sponsor. We didn't have any more Mobile One oil. It was all blowing out the back of the car. Oh, wow. So we got, we, we found enough. We were coming in about every six or eight laps. Fortunately, it was raining, so they couldn't see the oil coming out of the car. Right. Um, and we had a pit marshal, young woman who was a Corvette nut, so. That helps. She was very accommodating. <laughs> we were dumping it into the dry sump out of a five-gallon bucket. Oh, man. That's how we were filling it. Yeah. Um, and we ended up third. So we went from leading, but we got the car to the finish line. Actually, both cars to the finish line. We ended up finishing third in our first race, and that was pretty cool. I mean, everybody was excited. And what was the lesson learned from the, the sand? 
Well, you, we needed to look at what we were doing filtration-wise, velocities. So much of that is caused by the velocity through the filter element. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't have an you don't have enough filter area, the velocity through the the velocity through the filter paper, whatever you're using, becomes so strong it's like a sandblast. If you can increase that area, it slows the air down right. over that entire surface. So, yeah, we we improved our we improved our fil filtration system, solved the problem. And so we went on. I mean, just simply went on from there. Um, our first win was 2000. When was it? Late, late 2000, I think, in Texas, uh, which was a which was a big deal. That we, you know, Viper was our primary competition at that point. In time. The Viper was running the V10. Yeah, yeah. We could get close to them, but every time we got close, they found more power. They weren't. You know, that big motor only turned like a 5400. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it'd last forever. It was never going to break, and it made tons of torque. Um, that's what caused us to have to go to this 427. 427, yeah. Uh, but we were going to Texas where neither one of us had ever been. So we had a clean sheet of paper because they had raced at all the tracks we were racing. So they already had all their setup stuff done. We were brand new car, you know, never been. That's a tall mountain to climb for first year and even in the second. But we're going to Texas, we knew that they hadn't been there before. So now it was going to be head to head. What do you got? And uh, our guys put together a, a chassis setup program. I think we ended up by winning two or three laps. It's like about 115 degrees. It was hotter than that. Um, that was our first victory, and it was pretty cool. And from there, I mean, the rest is pretty much history. Le Mans. Yeah. When, when did you get to Le Mans? Our first year at Le Mans was 2000, mm -hmm. um, which was huge. And Le Mans was like, I'll never forget, because <clears throat> I'd been there several times before. We had raced the Riley Scott car there, the world sports car. The Pulsen wheel there once. And, and Herb had sent me there. I remember Herb saying, I, I, you need to go to Le Mans. I said, well, I, I'd never been out. I'd never been to Germany. Right. I said, well, why don't you need to go to Le Mans? He said, well, you need to see what they're doing. I said, Herb, I've been to every racetrack in this country since I've been three years old. I don't need to go see another racetrack. No, Le Mans is different. I said, what do you mean, different? I mean, cars, noise. No, no, it's a different animal. You really need to. So he won that argument. So I went, and I can remember coming down the hill. You come down from town. You come down this little hill, and you make a little right-hand turn on your left are the big orange spires. The entry. I, I can just remember seeing it, and I'm thinking, "Wow, this is pretty cool. This is actually Le Mans. I mean, this is not different. that I didn't think Le Mans was special. I right. just didn't think what, what was I going to learn. I mean, I knew it all." Pull in, got, I wasn't there two minutes to where I went from thinking, what do I need to go to Lamar for? To saying, holy shit, we'll never be able to get here. I, I have no idea how we're ever going to do what's needed to be done to get here and, and set up and operate on a different continent. And now it comes to, oh my God, the learning curve of what it takes to get all those moving parts together was huge. Just huge. It became well, the most daunting challenge, certainly, in my career. We hooked up with a guy who Herb had met, a guy by the name of Benoit Froger, who, had, who was a French guy. He'd run the marketing department at Le Mans for 20 years. So he knew the racetrack inside out, every rope, every nook, every cranny. Now, without him, we'd have, we'd have never, we would have never had success there. Um, he helped guide us, introduce us to the right people. First year we went, I think we finished on the podium. I think we finished third. And uh, second year, 2001, we won. 
And we ran, won three in a row. We won 2001, 2002. No, we were in 2001. I think we went in 2002. We finished second in 2003. And then four, five, and six, I think we won three in a row. Now, yeah. I, I've heard a story about 2001 where you were winning by a big margin and uh, set up a car wash. Uh, yeah. Tell us about that. Well, <laughs> 2001 was unique. All right. We, we had a car that, that was highly competitive. It was fast, but it was fragile. We had a gearbox in there that was just didn't make stuff in those days. It doesn't sound like it's, I mean, it doesn't seem like that long ago to me, but they didn't, didn't make stuff that, For that 20, like they do today. Yeah, 20, 24 so you had to buy, yeah. this was a Hewland. All right. We used it in the Trans Am car, which is fine. But 24 hours with the power we were making wasn't designed for that. So we had special coolers and lubricants, and we'd work with Hewland to get some special gears made, blah, blah, blah. But it was still fragile. Starter motors. We couldn't keep starter motors in the car, right? We used the conventional, you know, bolted to the block right. starter motor. But they were fracturing the casing. And we had done that. We, we, we designed one that was wrapped in silicone to damp the vibration. Took it apart and, and that, those big, huge casings on starter motors. Oh, yeah. Oh, they broke it in three pieces. Fractured. Quit working. We couldn't start the car. The cases broke. We tried everything we could do. We ended up developing a bell housing that had two starters on it, just in case we had a backup. So we had all these things that we knew were fragile. So now the race goes on, it's raining, guys are crashing. Should we get down to the last three, four hours of the race? There's nobody that can catch us. They're six hours behind. And then if we stopped then, we would still win. They would never be able to do enough laps to catch us. To catch up with you, yeah. So I'm thinking, well, why are we out here running around? It's still raining. A guy spins off, he, you know, car stalls, the starter motor doesn't work. You know, he's stuck out on track, our race is over. Yeah. We had one. No one can beat us. If we keep running. Yeah. So I get Benoit over. I say, listen, here's what we're thinking about doing. I don't want to get the French guys all cranky with us, you know, not being true sportsmen. I said, I want to bring the cars in, clean them up. I want to put new gearboxes in them. I want to put new starters on them and then put them out, let them run the last hour. I said, but I don't want to, I don't want to make the officials angry and I don't want to insult yeah, them. Like you're rubbing your nose in it. Yeah, exactly. He says, well, let me go check. So he goes up to headquarters. He knows all the guys up there. He's like, oh, no, that's okay. Henri Pescalero was running this race six times. He does that all the time. I said, no, no, no big deal. So I said, okay, guys, bring them in. We brought them in, parked them, put new gearboxes in them, changed the oil, put new starters on them, and then went out the last hour of the race and ran around very carefully. Uh, and I think we ended up finishing one, too. It was, it was hard on the crew guys a little bit because the – Guys who were running in second spot wanted to try and catch the guys in first sure, spot. Sure, yeah. Which, if had been, if we had been further down the maturity line of the program, mm-hmm. you know, probably would have considered letting them go and do that. But early on in the program, a Lamar victory, personal feelings sure. had to be parked. We needed, we needed that victory. We needed that victory to justify all the things that we had done up to that point all the money we had spent all the waves that we had made all the new 
farm field that we had plowed. Mm-hmm. Um, we needed to be able to justify that, and we needed that victory at Omaha to do that. And so uh, we weren't going to risk it for anything. And when you brought these cars in, though, didn't you make a, a, a semi-fatal mistake of closing the doors? Well, one of the crew guys did on one of the garages, ah. yeah. Uh, at Lamal, when you're out of the race, you signify that by cl- closing the door, the, the, the overhead garage door oh, to okay. the pit box. Yeah. All right. It faces out. The fans can see that. And that's your signal to the world that you have your race is over. Well, they thought they would bring the car in. They didn't want people to see them washing it and waxing it and do what they were doing. So they closed the garage door for some privacy. Each garage has a marshal. He comes running down. Why are you out of the race? I said, we're not out of the race. Well, you close your garage door. That means you're out. I'm thinking, oh, what did we do? So I went up. At this point in time, I had a pretty good, you know, we had, I'd known these guys for several years through the homologation process. And we had a, developed a pretty good, pretty good relationship, a very good relationship, actually. And uh, they explained to me the tradition of doing that, and they allowed us to pull the door back up and continue racing. So That was very nice of them. Yes, it was very nice of them. <laughs> they, uh, and ordinarily, uh, they wouldn't do that, but... Like I said, we had developed a really good relationship. So you go on winning, winning, winning. Yeah. And the world goes crazy in 2020. Yeah. You get inducted into the Hall of Fame. Yeah. And uh, tell us a little bit about that whole era. Well, you know, we had we had just finished setting the record at Lamar for the. No one has ever done has ever gone there for 20 straight years, same team, same car, same mark. No, nobody has ever done. I mean, obviously, Porsche has been there for 20 straight years, but it's always been different team. You right. Know? Yeah. Um, but we were quite proud of that. Pandemic hits. We physically can't get there. I mean, right. Travel was prohibited. You know, they changed the date of the race into the fall to try and get that some of that ease, and they managed to. There was, I, I think, that, I don't know what they ended up that first year if they even had spectators. Well, we couldn't go. Heartbreaking. Uh, for me uh, and then during also that pandemic time they were looking at a uh, organizational change inside the company uh, doing th- going to be doing things a little bit differently and uh, that caused them to eliminate my position as it existed for me so I also was uh, relieved of my duties as program manager during that period of time and what changed at Pratt and Miller uh, about the same? Because I, I remember some of the guys were coming and going. Coincidentally and, enough, not so much the internal personnel, but Jim. Pratt and Miller have been doing a lot of work for Oshkosh Defense. Mm-hmm. A lot of work. And Oshkosh finally just came to the conclusion, well, why are we continue to pay these guys? Why don't we just buy them? And uh, they went to Jim and made him an offer that made a whole lot of business sense. And, Jim sold the company within literally within days of that happening. The two were not at all connected. Right. right? Totally independent. Just the way, the stars, yeah. just the way the stars lined up. Yeah. So Pratt Miller got sold and uh, I got relieved of my duties. And uh, now we're here. So, and, and what is what is Doug? What are Doug Behan's duties now? I am a brand yeah. ambassador. So I continue to interface with our customer base, doing what I'm doing right here today, right. Right, which I did anyway yeah. you know, during yeah. the other reign. Um, so it's become more of a 
I don't Broad terms, more of a marketing job than a race leadership job. Uh, I do all the Corvette corrals. Last weekend I was in Hershey, Pennsylvania at a museum fundraising event. Um, those are things that, that, that I'm doing now. Things I love. I, I love the people aspect of it. You know, uh, obviously I'm still geeked up about the competitive side of it, but we're in a transition period with the car right now. Right. Uh, you know, where we have, we don't have a proper GT3 car, so we're running a modified version until we get our new GT3 car done, which will debut in 2023. Um, so, 2024. What year is now? We're in 2022. I don't know. I keep 2020, looking. 2024. I keep looking at my magazines, and, I, and they I, got I, the, I, 20, the 2024 cars. I know. I'm thinking, geez, I don't, yeah, I don't yeah, even no. know what well, year not, it is Not anymore. to mention, you know, you get closer to fossil. You think. Fossil phase of life. You, <laughs> memory thing goes too they're not helping us um uh 2024 uh so um you know that's like that'll be exciting time for us uh, right now we're for lack of a better term we're going through the motions um when you look at the sanctuary body isn't going to really put us in a position to win or dominate anything and rightfully so because we have a car that doesn't comply doesn't conform to the rules. Right. So how are they allowing us to continue to compete? Yeah. And probably because they want our fans at the racetrack. Sure. We got about half of them. Uh, so it's working out really well. Um, we're learning a lot. We got a lot of stuff that we can still learn with the old car that, that helps a new car. I mean, we're running on a new tire that we've never run on before. So we can gather all that data. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great engineering exercise, but we've managed our expectations about victories. Okay. Sure. Um, because that's not going to happen. It, we've come close a couple of times. We got one. I think we've, we won one race this year. Um, but it helps us develop stronger strategies. Um, it's been very beneficial. Although, although, although we haven't won a lot of races, nor are we going to win a championship this year. Uh, although we might have the endurance championship still out there. I have to look at the numbers. We're not going to win the the manufacturer's championship. We're not going to win a driver's championship. But the lessons we have learned, the information we've gathered have been uh, very invaluable going forward with the new car. So. You being relieved of your GM duties, as it, as it were, upset a lot of fans. What, what kind of feedback did you get from, from that, from the fan base? Because well, people do connect with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At first, I mean, they were kind of shocked. And understandably so, as were the competitors, as were the manufacturers. I mean, you know, I did a lot of stuff for Michelin. I did a lot of stuff for Mobile One, mm. which, you know, I mean, quote, unquote, they, they didn't pay for. They're sponsors. So, I mean, they, ultimately they were paying. But, I mean, you know, as part of me being in my position, I would, I would go do this stuff for them. Sure. Because they were strategic partners of ours. You know, that was going to be over. Um, they weren't particularly pleased about that. Uh, the fans weren't pleased because that meant I wasn't going to be at Corvette Corrals and the rest of it. And that's just, you know, change is hard. Yeah. Um, at that point in time, and unbeknownst to myself, apparently there was enough fan feedback at different levels within GM that they thought it might be wise to talk to me to see if I'd consider coming back and, you know, being powered do, do, doing those kind of things yeah. so that so that fans didn't lose that level of engagement that they had with my presence and uh, of course i said yeah heck yeah i'll do it so that's how it came about 
How do the fans feel about the C8? Oh, they're loving on the C8. You know, you know it, it's just like when we went away from round taillights. I'm yeah. never buying a Corvette again. All <laughs> the news, new taillights, I look like a Camaro, blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, that, that lasted for about a minute and a half. Well, the same was saying, I'm not going to mid-engine thing. I like having my headlights. Well, you only have to look at the waiting list for C8. So. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and the thing is, C8 was designed for, for many purposes, not the least of which, you know, our, our average, our buyer was what I like to refer to as last-time buyer. <laughs> Not first time. Um, they were old. Uh, as I look in the mirror, I'm, I'm a member of that group. So the idea was to design a car that... Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah. Uh, design a car that, that would introduce new people to Corvette and obviously younger people. You got to have a younger audience. Oh, yeah. If you don't, yeah. I, mean, I don't think we'll ever run out of old people. But the idea being that if you can attract younger people, that'd be a good thing. Interestingly enough, with the C8, I think it's, I haven't looked at the numbers lately, but virtually 50% of C8 customers have never owned any Chevrolet product. 50%. Dude, dude this is something that either I read somewhere or I, you know, you, you look at so many things and you can't remember where it came from. Yeah. But there's a, a, vast, a, a vast majority of non-car people that don't even relate Corvette to Chevrolet. Yeah. You know, a Corvette's a Corvette. I was out in California doing a, a ladies thing. I forget what it was called. Some, the lady who ran, is a woman, mm -hmm. Jill Campbell, who ran Laguna Seca right. for a number of years, mm -hmm. All right, switched on. And she was, she did a great job in, in marketing that racetrack. And she had a woman's group, Monterey, California. Sure. Keep in mind where we're talking now. Uh, that did all kinds of activities together. I forget what it was called. It had a cute little name that went with it. And she asked me if I'd come to speak to their ladies group that met every month. I said, yeah, are you kidding me? Rich ladies in Monterey, I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> um, I got all done with doing what I was doing. We had a really good time. And a lady raised her hand and said, well, can you help me out here? She says, I have no idea what a Corvette is. There's a car, right? I said, yeah, it's a car. It's a two-seat sports car. Oh, okay. All right. A woman in Monterey, California had no idea what a Corvette was. So she didn't know where to buy one. Well, <laughs> no. Didn't know what, I mean, how could that possibly happen? But it's out there. So your work is never done. Yeah. And that, I like that. Sure. I like that. I like talking to groups that have never been to a racetrack or never been to a racing event. To explain them what it is, to, to teach them what it is. So this brand ambassador role allows me to continue to do that, continue the level of fan engagement. Um, I enjoy it. And, it and, and, you know, when we started out the program, it was small. And so I had way different levels of responsibility, not, not on paper, but in, in actuality. I mean, for me to help unload the truck or load the truck was yeah, part right, of what yeah. we did every part day. What you I, did, yeah. We needed the people. Yeah. You know, as a, as a program grows, you got people, you know, now you got specialists. You got guys doing this. You got guys doing that. You got girls doing this. I don't need to do that anymore. So right. it, the job had, aside from arguing with the guys at headquarters, all right, which was <laughs> fundamental to get the money, all right, I, it, my main role was what I'm doing now. So I, I, I enjoyed that. It, 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 and my love of the sport I get so integrated in watching these young guys. Danny Binks, for example. Oh, right? yeah. Danny just yeah. retired. Well, yeah. let me tell you, 
I inherited Danny in 1988 when I was at Cars and Concepts. I think he was, hadn't even been married or was just getting married at that point in time. You know, his kid's now crew chief on Chip Ganassi. Right. That's yeah. how long we've been doing this. Today. That's right, yeah. Okay. It, my, my, my love had morphed from the competition side, which was just always there. I mean, I haven't lost any of that. But the importance became the people, watching these people grow, providing them opportunities to, 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 to do things they didn't think they were capable of doing. Right. Leave that office door open. Let them come in if they've got an idea or a problem. Let's, let's, let's listen to that and figure out what we can do. Make them feel as though they're really part of something. You know, as, as I told drivers, which are a pain in the ass to, to manage, generally speaking, coming in, you learn right away you're no more important than a guy driving the truck. Right. Right. You are no more important. And you need to learn about him and his kids and his wife and his pet's name because this is one big old family. And that's what we've done. And I think that that human side of it has, has played a huge role in why we've been so successful. Well, we've had Andy on the show, Andy Pilgrim and mm -hmm. Johnny O'Connell. Yep. And they both say you're, you're a dad to him. And I've, I've, had, you know, I've had students work for you, and I need, I need to give you that shout-out because <laughs> I camped out on the, on the doorstep of the, the hauler for a couple of years before I right. could get anybody's attention because I was the marketing department of, of the motorsports program at yeah. college. And, uh, you know, Dan took a couple of these guys under his wing, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know how many have gone through the, the, whole, the, the whole setup at Pratt & Miller. I know of graduates that I had, but, the, you know, I've left the program now. But the guys that have gone there just said it was it was a family. It yeah. was and and you know once you once you showed that you you wanted to learn. Right. Nobody comes out of a out of a educational institution institution knowing everything they need to know. No, they just need to be trainable when they get there and listen and right. see how it's done. And these guys all say the same thing about well, Doug. Well, you have to understand it can be pretty intimidating for for a kid coming out of school to sure. be thrust into. I mean, dream job. I'm going to work for Corvette Racing. I think it'd be pretty intimidating walking in there because you know you're going to be dealing with guys with a lot of experience, right? And you don't want to put a foot wrong. And 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 if that's if there's not a welcoming atmosphere there, you can you can make people very uncomfortable to the point where they really don't want to be part of it. And that wasn't something we were ever going to do. You know, the new kids came in. We know how to do that, right? We we know how to to welcome someone in, begin that training process. Don't put them in a position to fail. Put them in a position to succeed and provide them the support to do that. And it doesn't take that long. No. And we thank you for that. Well, because that's, you know, that's how that's my relationship started with you. Well, and, and that's my point when I talk about this morphing thing. It became really enjoyable for me as we grew and got bigger, we had more new people come in, to watch these kids come in, learn, and grow, and, and, and begin lives for themselves. Oh, yeah. All right. Absolutely. Get married, have kids open their own business if they choose. I mean, those are, that's the rewarding part. Personally, for me, that was re very, as, as rewarding as the checkered flag and trophy. Well, I, I see it as a long time before you fossilize, as you put it. <laughs> so what's next for Doug? Well, I'm, I, I, have every, I have every intention of, of, of continuing here. This is my last race under my current contractual agreement. So off season, I think we'll sit down and see if they want to continue with what we're doing. And uh, I have every want willingness to do that. I, we've got some in interesting times coming um, that I think warrant as much experienced input as you can possibly find. Uh, you know, moving to the new GT3 car and 
you know, competing both in WEC and in uh, and in IMSA. Um, you know, you can't you can't have too many eyes on the ball at this point in time. I, I don't think that's my own personal opinion over what I've learned. Now, whether I convince people at GM of that or not. Well, you got you got the fans in your corner. I I I. You know, they make that perfectly clear to me. I was just, like I said, I was just at Hershey for an event, and it was more about what I'm doing than what we're doing with the race car. So um, I, I'm, I, you know, I, I don't want to say I'm confident we'll continue, but, but I can't see a reason why we wouldn't want to do that. Now, can I ask you a couple technical questions sure. about the new Corvette, yeah. the C8? Yeah. I couldn't help but notice the first time I saw a chassis of the C8 at, at, at Petit, you mm-hmm. know, it was a cutaway. And I'm looking at it, and I'm looking at the front wheels, and uh, the front hubs, and it may just be coincidence mm-hmm. that the front hubs were splined. But, you know, they're, I'm thinking, why are they splined? I mean, there's no axles going to them. Are we going to drop some electric motors in that, in that front trunk uh, you know, we can't and make really, a hybrid? We can't really speak about future product. Right. <laughs> but I've seen those same front hubs, and I've also listened to the uh, mantra being taken forward by GM leadership that says we are an electric company. You put those mm. together from a purely technical standpoint, I think it would be pretty clear to assume that something like that is on the horizon. And when you read the buff books and different spy photographs, and I think Tadge has talked around it a little bit um, about you know whether or not that would make sense to do something like that. Uh, I, 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 on a personal level, I can't see us not doing it. You know, oh, I mean, it's just the next logical step. It's a great way, way to get all-wheel drive in the car. Absolutely. And, yeah. and that's the only way, what, you know, how do we define performance? I mean, so the, the standard car with 495 horsepower goes 0 to 60 in 2.9. Right. So they just said with 650 horsepower in yeah. 2.6. Okay. And, and people are going to want that because they can get it. For me, personally... I mean, it's a shoulder shrug for me. I, I, I'm not, I, I can't control myself with 495. I'm sure as hell I'm not going to be doing myself any favors with 650. And, and, and neither can most people. Yeah. <laughs> so the only way to get that number down is to, you're not, there's no more room for tires under the car. I mean, unless you make a steamroller tire. Uh, you know, you got to go to all-wheel drive to, to improve that number. And... And the instant torque from electric motors. Yeah, yeah. So it would be pretty cool. I mean, that thing would be, I, I mean, I can't imagine. I just, I just, wow. I mean, it would be, that would be wow factor. Cool. Well, we're, we're going to start the rumor then. You know, you know I, 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 I'm <laughs> not sure we're going to be the first with that rumor. They've been yakking on there for a couple I years. thought I was the only geekazoid that would see no, no, the no. splines on no, those no. front rotors. Dude, I thought, well, maybe it's the same thing they're using in the back. These spy guys are looking for oh, yeah. wires hanging out from underneath <laughs> and electrical <laughs> connectors. And, yeah. So well, who, Doug, knows? who knows? I, I, I would guess we're probably going to any, any parting shot here? Anything you want the folks to know about you, Chevrolet, Corvette? No. Just it's been, I mean, I, I, don't, think, I don't think anybody who's ever talked to me would come away with the impression that I didn't love what I do. Okay. That's certainly true. Um, I still have a fair level of passion for the car and for racing and for the guys that I work with and for the mountains that we've yet to climb. You know, I really thought when you look at this age thing, I mean, everybody at some point in time gets age limited. Uh, as long as I'm physically capable of sure. going forward, I, I, I want to con- continue doing it. It's just, I thought 
when we got to C7 and we went ahead and won them all with a C7, that would be, I would be at a point where I, you know, that, that's when I should have probably hung it up. Everything would point to that. <coughs> Excuse me. That time came and went and I forgot all about that because I knew that C8 was coming. So then I said, well, you know, when we get working with Tadge, we get C8 done and that hits the showroom floor and, and we go and race that car, then for sure that'll be it. Well, we've done the C8 thing and, you know, I'm still here. Kind of forgot about it because there's, now we've got the new challenge. Now we've got the GT3 car. You know, there's always something that comes up that says, I need to stick around until we get that done. I want to see what happens with this deal. So, you know, you I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to keep going as long as I can. Well, I, it, I'm not the type to sit home and look out the window. You were infected at the age of three. You, you admitted that. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's a bad drug. <laughs> <laughs> well, Doug Fehan, it's been a pleasure having you on Bud's Garage Overdrive. Uh, you're welcome through the door anytime. And uh, we'll keep the door open just so we don't get penalized or we, they think we're out of business. Yeah. Okay. Well, Bud, thank you. As I said, coming in, I'm, 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 I was excited to be here. Um, I appreciate what you're doing here on the podcast, and I also appreciate what you did for the young people back in your previous position. You know, it's, it, it's guys like yourself that, that keep young people engaged in, in automotive. We've got a, when you look at the numbers of 19-year-olds in this country that don't have driver's licenses, nor do they have any interest in getting one, for the stuff that we love, that's pretty scary. Yes. Um, and and we're, we're, transportation is moving off in a bunch of different directions the least of which seems to be where you're driving your own car right and your own car is exciting to drive so i don't want to let that go um i think there's still a market for it uh and i i, I think we're a pretty well, long way off from losing it but uh, i'm not going to sit back and let it happen i, I want to keep motorsports alive i want to keep young people engaged in the automotive industry and uh using the, the sport of automobile racing is a great way to do that so we're going to keep on plugging. Thank you for all you do. You're welcome, and thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Well, when you get to Chevrolet engines, as we know, there's a lot of choice. There's the ones that we grew up with, 265, right. 283, you know, the, the pushrod engines right. up until the big blocks and everything else. Impossible to talk about Chevrolet without getting into the, the discussion of LS engines and the variations of them. Now, sure. if you're a guy that's got an LS engine and you've purchased an aftermarket supercharger, a mm -hmm. Magnuson supercharger, that's one of the very popular ones right? because it's compact. It uses rotors in it, screw-type rotors that are, you know, low down, low profile, and fits under the hood of your car. Right, right. But if you've got one of those systems and you want to put a better pulley system on it, you don't have to look any further than Concept 1. They have got a pulley system for an LS engine with a Magnuson supercharger on it. You can pick your your power steering, you know, your pumps and stuff like that. You can pick your compressor for your AC units, your alternator, how big a one you need, and they'll advise you on all of this stuff. And when it arrives at your shop, it is all in a couple of boxes. Right. And ready it is ready to, to go. On. Everything is there. Brackets, sure. uh, you know, spacers, instructions, hose fittings, uh, whatever. And they can, you know, you can engineer it, put it on your car and have a system that'll last a lifetime. Right. And they're available in different finishes. Now, I think it's cool to combine the finishes, if you will. Mm -hmm. A lot of the bracketry will come, you know, billet machined and clear anodized. You can get it done in black. You know, you can have uh, you can have different color pulleys with it, whatever it might be, and it, it just makes things pop. Oh, yeah. And it makes things work more efficiently. Sure. Keeps it under the hood, 
or into your chassis if you're putting your LS in something else. That's what's so great about these guys. They actually have the drawings and design the systems, machine the parts on their CNC machines in-house. Right. And you can talk to them. And I, I've mentioned it before. I had a car that I wanted to run the stock fan on it, a mm. mechanical fan, because I had the shroud and everything, and it had a really good mechanical fan. Yeah. Didn't want to run electric. They said, that's no problem. You know, send us the fan and the and the spacer, and we'll do some measuring, and we'll we'll remachine your spacer or give you what you need to make it happen. Wow, that's great service. So, good stuff. Check them out at Concept One Pulley Systems. They are right here in Cumming, Georgia. And uh, give them a call and ask for uh, Kevin or Randy. Okay. And they'll take care of you. Perfect reaction times. Doug Feehan, Tim. An interesting uh, study. I always thought that Doug worked for the Corvette. Yeah. organization for Chevrolet. All right, right. And as we learned, he he did not. He, did he not, was right. he was a liaison between the two. Mm-hmm. And uh, really, when you go back to his, uh, first of all, I was blown away by the first race he'd ever saw was at War Memorial Stadium in Buffalo. That's the first race I ever saw was in War Memorial Stadium in Buffalo. Wow. And you know what what are the chances? Yeah. Who'd have thought? But his story that he tells about. Working with the parts stores and the, and the industry back then, mm-hmm. the national industries. You know, he was he was probably one of the f- first people to initiate having national sponsors on his race car. His brother right. drove the race car, but you know that 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 started a whole different world of racing because it used to be mom and pop's garage was on the side of a stock car okay. or the local body shop or whatever yeah. it might be, and uh, you know he went he went beyond that. Mm-hmm. And, and grew with the national companies. When he got involved with um, the Chevrolet Corvette organization, mm-hmm. he got the people fired up about the Corvette. Now, you gotta, you got to remember, the Corvette was built by, by Pratt & Miller, which is an engineering form, uh, firm in the, the racing Corvette. Let me, obviously, Corvette's built by Chevrolet, but the racing version was handled by Pratt & Miller. And mm. they largely do a lot of military stuff. You yeah. know, and and they do software and hardware and all sorts of things. Anyway, their their car was state of the art that they right. built. So when he he got the people at Chevrolet, he was he got the people that were in cubicles most of the time, took them out to the racetrack and let them see the project they were working on. You know, the the racing Corvette. Right. And let them get enthused. Right. About the about the car. Because they saw the reaction of the public to the car, the, the racing fans. Sure. And he, he kept people engaged that way. It, it ruffled some feathers, mm-hmm. you know, but he was a subcontractor. But he was thinking outside of the box and, you know, led them to successes for so many years. He was with them for 25 years. And um, I, I just thought it was a classic study in how to get people behind something by engaging them in more than just what was on paper or what was on a computer screen or, right. you know, the sights, the smells, really everything. Really involved yeah. in the whole project, yeah. And, you know, I think that's, that's good advice to anybody that's trying to manage a group of people. Oh, sure. You know, sometimes it gets lost in the shuffle, uh, you know, that there, there are people out there that have no idea what a Corvette is. They don't even relate it to Chevrolet. You right. Know, I've had people say, "Well, who builds Corvette?" And, yeah, you know, you got you, you're thinking, "Well, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, Chevrolet." <laughs> but the people that were within Chevrolet were working on this amazing car, and once he got them, you know, got them out there and 
got them to, to see what was going on. It changed in their involvement in their, in their entire job. Yeah, it gave them an opportunity to see the big picture and become There you part go, the big picture. It. That's what I'm looking right. at. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I appreciated him taking the time. Uh, he came in on an, on an odd day for, for us. We couldn't get you in here, but I know he had a chance to listen to it. So I, it, it's just a fascinating story about initiating uh, a project and keeping it going. And yes, do you ruffle feathers? Yes, you do. And yes, you know, are you thinking outside the box? And yes, you are. And eventually, you know, uh, new management comes in, things change, and mm-hmm. it is what it is. Oh, yeah. But he'll be remembered uh, for all he's done. He's still going to the track as a, um, what would you call it, a a person that, that is a, not the liaison anymore, but kind of a cheerleader for the team. Oh, sure. He's public still relations. A, that's what I'm looking right, for. Public he's a public relations, relations guy. A promoter. So I appreciated him taking the time to come in here and do that when he was... Uh, you know, in town. Right. Restoring a classic muscle car, bud? As a matter of fact, I am. Really? Working on the 73 Mach 1 that's been a, a couple-year project anyway. Yeah. But I finally got to the wheels, uh, wheel portion of it. I called our great friends out at Year One, Classic Restoration People, and they had the correct correct Magnum wheels for this car. And they, they don't have trim rings or anything. They are a billet wheel, uh, and they machine them so they look like the trim rings of old yes i have seen these and they're oh, they're, 17 they're fantastic inch, right? yeah they're 17 inch so they'll clear all your brake system right. changes because most people put uh disc brakes on their classic cars and they're restoring them uh the car that that i've been working on they wanted to stay with the brake setup they had but i i just cautioned them at some point in time you may want to upgrade which you can do with year one parts upgrade mm-hmm. to uh disc brakes all the way around and uh so you need these 17 inch wheels so you don't have to buy another set of wheels uh, right. if you decide to upgrade but the great thing about them right now is across the board year one is selling all of their wheels uh, at great discounts mm-hmm. and some of them are even free shipping wow and that's, if you i mean you, that's huge right yeah there. you put in a code that says buddy bud 20 and you make it a break on some of the related parts the okay. ancillary stuff uh, a lot of the wheels come with the center caps and and lug nuts some mm-hmm. of them do some of them don't but Man, if you're gonna put, if you're gonna update your wheels, you know, get the center caps and the, the oh lug, yeah, get the lug nuts for setup, sure. Get, get everything so you're not trying to refurbish your center caps because I've tried that. Right, it's not right. fun. And the lug nuts are probably already rounded off. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Another great thing is you need to get on Year One's email list because they send out an email blast uh, three or four a week. And it goes out specifically to the type of car that you're interested in. Mm-hmm. So if they're having a if they're having an across-the-board deal, like uh, the last blast I got, they were talking about uh, wiring systems and uh, body panels and stuff like that. That that goes across all brands. And they've got some great sales going on. Some of them are 25 30% off or free shipping or a combination of those. Check them out because you can get these, these deals on a daily basis. Uh, and it's a, it's a great way to save money on restoring oh, your car. Absolutely. Check them out at year one. Dot com. Okay. Well, that's just about a wrap for us, Tim. I want to thank uh, the folks uh, from Lanier Technical College, Year One, Concept One Pulley Systems, and Doug Feehan for taking the time to come in and, and be with us. Next week's guest yeah. is Dave Despain. Oh, yeah. And oh. what a tale he has to tell. Don't you know it. 40 years in the industry of broadcasting, and he's done it all. And uh, 
he he just uh, he just rolled with it. You, you know, see. with the changes, the technology, all the things that went on, and the, right. how things change in racing from year to year. He just kept up with it and and stayed with it, and just made a, a great life out of it, and does a great interview. Yes, he does. Imagine that, since ah. he's done so many great <laughs> interviews. Hey. I want to thank all of you for tuning in. Our, our numbers are growing and growing. We've got people listening to us in Belgium, Germany, Egypt, uh, Africa, and Canada. Wow. And West Virginia. And West Virginia. And, West Virginia. and Pennsylvania. And, and America, Oregon. yes. Yeah. <laughs> that oh, yeah, too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up, Bill. Anyway, let's not forget about Bud's Garage, the radio show on WDUN in Gainesville, Georgia. It features local guests and their expertise, and you can transfer that those discussions that we have about the local folks and the local mechanics and the local garages and local dealerships, you can take that to your dealership, your garages, and, you know, learn right. something from what we're trying to discuss and, you know, apply it to your yeah. situation. Exactly. Well, let's remember, keep between the ditches, shiny side up, and we will see you next week right here at Bud's Garage Overdrive, available at your favorite podcast site.